Hi, welcome to Firewall. Um, I am Hugo Lindgren. I am filling in for Bradley this week. Um, Bradley, as you know, is a pretty busy guy, but he is especially tied down this week promoting his novel, Obvious in Hindsight, which has been available in bookstores for a couple of weeks and is freshly available on Amazon if that's the way you order books. Um, so look for that. And Bradley will be back with us next week, next Tuesday, with our regular Tuesday episode. Um, but today, filling in for Bradley, I am talking to two people from London. They are Rob Fien, he is director of the London Society, and Leanne Tritton, who is the chairperson of the Society. And I'm really excited to talk to them for a couple of reasons. Um, one, the London Society is this really cool civic group that's been around for more than 100 years. And it's devoted to talking about, discussing, debating the future of London. Um, London is a favorite city of mine. Um, and I'm really interested, to, especially in talking to them about uh, the ways in which London and New York are what they share in common, how they're different, and how their futures may be linked, and what we could possibly learn as New Yorkers from the way London is managed and the way people live there and engage with the city. Um, I should mention that the London Society has just published a book that's called London of the Future. It's a really kind of exciting book, exactly the kind of book I'd love to see published about New York, which is a real examination from a kind of citizen perspective of what the, what what they want the future to be and what the future likely will be in a whole bunch of different uh, areas in, in terms of economy, in terms of technology, in terms of walkability, in terms of climate, all these different areas are covered in the book by, by uh, selected experts who are affiliated one way or another with the London Society. So without too much further ado, let's get on with, with Leanne and Rob. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's yes. great to be here. Thank you. So the first question, the London Society was founded in 1912, and then in 1921, it published the original London of the Future book. So tell me, if you took someone from the London Society in 1921, and you took them around the city of London today, not the city of London, the city of London is a specific thing, but the around London today, would they be impressed? Would they be let down? Would they think that the sort of city had been taken good care of in the last hundred years? How, how would they react? I'll, I'll take that first, Rob, if that's okay. So, so Rob and I are sort of uh, partners in crime with the London Society, and and Rob was really the the brains behind the book. And what what I found really fascinating about the the two books, the original book was was done in nineteen twenty one, and then, as you say, it if you took those people and walked them around London now, I think there'd be a mixture of um, pleasantly surprised, you know, there's some really lovely things that have been, um, lots of parts of London have have, have been uh, kept and are still beautiful and all of that sort of stuff, all of that ambience of, of London. Um, there's some massive changes. So places like Canary Wharf didn't exist. Um, uh, you know, sort of uh, the, the motor car has completely taken, you know, took over the running of the city. Then you've got tall buildings in the city of London, which we didn't have before. Um, so I think there'd be lots of bits they'd be really impressed by, but also I think they'd be really frustrated um, by the fact that we're still struggling with the same problems we were struggling with 100 years ago. You know, things like air quality, uh, tra transport, housing, you know, uh, affordability of the city, all of these issues haven't gone away. So from that point of view, we haven't made a lot of progress, but in, in other parts, I think uh, London continues to be, you know, considering lots of things have happened, you know, world wars, everything else is still one of the most vibrant cities in the world, if not the world. 
Rob, what do you think that that fictitious Londoner from 1921, what would they miss? What would they say? Oh, take me to blank and it wouldn't be there anymore. I'm not entirely sure ex exactly what they would miss. I'm, it, probably their local pub, if, if, you, <laughs> if you know most Londoners, would, would probably have changed considerably by now, if not. Are pubs a lot different than they were in 1921? There's a lot fewer of them. Right. So, um, you know, there was, until recently, there was a big epidemic with the closure of pubs uh, in London and the wider UK. Um, that's kind of plateaued now, thankfully. But, um, you know, it, they were really always part of the civic structure of the city in a way. They were on every street corner. So, and they really were the public, you know, houses, the living rooms uh, of, of the population. So they would have spent an awful lot of time in the pub. So now, were they, now were it's they male only a, in 1921? Pardon? Were they male only in 1921? Uh, I mean, it's a complex history about who was allowed in and what the rules were, because one of the points about pubs were they sort of transgressed the normal laws and behaviours. So the point was you could go to the pub and be someone else and experience things and, and potentially meet women. So right. there was all sorts of things uh, going on pubs, the, the dif different social classes were mixing. Right. So it was... a, a what was great about them, and I think why they've endured, is that um, they're unlike any other uh, sort of a structured place in, in the UK. Leanne, you mentioned that someone from 1921 would be frustrated, or that a lot of the frustrations that Londoners felt about their city in 1921 remain true today. Can you expand on that a little bit? What were Londoners in 1921 frustrated about? You mentioned air quality, but what, what, were, the, what were the deficiencies of the city that were sort of top of mind for people? Well, I think, I think it's the same things that we have today. You know, So if you were wealthy in London, it was fine. Um, if you were poor, life was hard, you know, access to housing, access to clean air, um, being able to get around, those sorts of things. There's still um, still big issues. I mean, things like transport infrastructure, though, I think in London is amazing. I mean, one of the things that we beat ourselves up about constantly, you know, if, you, if you're a Londoner and you get on the tube and it says it's going to be four minutes to the next tube you know we we tear our hair out we think it's all gone to rack and ruin but in Four fact minutes is too long for a Londoner to wait for a train exactly exactly but in fact in any normal situation that is that is very very good and the yeah. the money and the investment into our infrastructure I think is amazing and I'm, I'm originally from uh, Australia so I've been here for 28 years and I'm constantly staggered about how easy it is to get around London um so I think uh, I think that that's an issue. I mean, obviously, with air quality, back in the day, it was about smog and industry, you know, spewing out smog, and so it was really serious. But of course, we've still got those issues with car emissions, and we're trying to do a lot to fix those. But um, it still impacts people. If you live near sort of major roads, it's not a great place to live um, because of air quality. So uh, so that remains an issue. I mean sort of overcrowding the sense of you know London is everyone always thinks that London's overcrowded and over the last hundred years not, you know, not New Yorkers <laughs> <laughs> well over the last hundred years you know there's been sort of ups and downs there have been large uh, sort of uh, uh periods where people have moved out of London and then it became cool to come back in London, into London. And, and, you know, my own experience in the last 28 years has been 
like that. So I arrived in the mid 90s where it was just then people were starting to come back into London and say I'd live in inner in a city London and sort of start to gentrify some of the the, the more deprived areas. Um, so of course that that was a great thing and I've I've really benefited from that personally. But that's caused a lot of stress with with um, other people who haven't benefited so much. So you know this constant tension between people with resources and those without resources that that still hasn't changed. Rob, that 1921 book, um, what did it get right about the future? Are there, it wasn't obviously a predictive volume, but what did they, what did they think the future was going to be that, that they were correct about and what were they wrong about? They hoped for some kind of regulation about London sprawl mm-hmm. and they imagined some kind of um, ring around London that would protect from that. And we now have the Green Belt, right. which, um, you know, which stops development past a certain point of London which is constantly being debated to this day, but still still is a valuable way to protect the countryside. So that green belt exists and has existed since when? Uh, it was, I think it came in in the 1940s. Uh-huh. But certainly the London Society put forward the Greater London Development Plan uh, a similar time to the book, which went on to um, influence Abercrombie, who wrote his great, his great plan for London, um, which was commissioned by the government. So even then we were kind of sticking our nose in and mm-hmm. getting involved. And so they, they, they put it in the book as well, and that, that has come to pass. They also hoped for underground international travel to Paris, which we now have with the Channel Tunnel. Okay. So they got that. It took us a really long time to build it, about 70-odd right, years. Early we, than ever. We got there, yeah. They wanted, uh, on the flip side, they wanted uh, airports on top of public parks. So they imagined we'd be landing planes in, in Hyde Park in central London. Um, wow, what a terrible idea. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really, really terrible idea. They, um, they also hoped for a series of what they called pneumatic tubes for the postal system that would just be interconnected around London and you just you could fire off a... 50 kilo parcel and it would just zip around these tubes and be delivered to the right address. Now that's so, a great idea. They, they actually made a pneumatic subway. I think they made one stop in Manhattan, but it was abandoned. Um, yeah. So. I mean, if they could have got it together, we might now be sitting around having a very different conversation. It, it, it does strike me though as something that would be very prone to a lot of malfunction. I want to bring uh, New York into the conversation here. And what, I, what I'd love to do is I'd love to bring up a bunch of issues that are facing New York. And I want you to give the sort of like London uh, state of affairs on such as it is. Um, so I'm going to start uh, with you, Leanne. Again, this is uh, it's not random, but I'm going to just sort of switch back and forth. So if, if Rob, if you want to jump in, um, please do. But the first one uh, the, the the issue that's sort of top of mind in New York right now is the is the migrant crisis, where there are tens of thousands of undocumented um, people from largely from Latin America who um, have been uh, through in, in large part through the actions of other politicians in the rest of the country pushed into New York City, um, where the government is mandated to take care of them, to house them, and to feed them. Tell me how that issue uh, is 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 similar or not similar in in London in terms of people um, from outside the UK uh, coming into the city um, who do not have the proper papers and and permission to be there? How how are they dealt with? What's the policy? 
Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I, I, as a general rule, I think immigration is, for the UK um, uh, at large, is a massive issue, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it dominates our political airwaves as well. So right. so that that ha uh, that's very similar. I think, though, that London is seen as more of a, um, a friendly home for Londoners. Uh -huh. um, but the pressure on local authorities to look after people is enormous. So we've got a government system where you have uh, the mayor, you know, you have central government, which is uh, Rishi Sunak and uh, people who sit on the UK government. Then you've got the London uh, GLA and our mayor is uh, Sadiq Khan. And then you've got each borough who's got their own um, sort of governance system that, that are elected and of course they then um, manage their own budgets so so different boroughs have different stresses I don't think we have the same sort of political pressure in terms of undocumented migrants I mean we've just got a, a an issue with a lot of people fighting for resources and needing looking after and I think and I, I always have this debate with, you know, sort of native Londoners. I always think as an Australian that um, London is an incredibly kind place. You know, right. generally it's quite welcoming. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but it's it's about we don't have enough houses for people. So I, I saw a, a, a statistic the other day that our population in London has grown by the the um, the same population as Leeds. So Leeds is a major city. So you imagine if they added a Leeds since since what time Leeds. in the last ten uh, years? In the, no, in the last uh, three or four years. So okay. a, a massive amount. The other thing is we have had so uh, the UK government has let in um, a huge amount of people from Hong Kong, which is uh, which is right and proper because of uh, of course of, there were handover um, to China, and so there are a lot of residents who've been given citizenship. Are those um, typically well-off people from Hong Kong? Not necessarily. You'd be okay. surprised. I mean, I think everyone thought that that was going to be the case but I think it comes from you know just just a lot of normal Hong Kong people who feel that their future is no longer in Hong Kong right. we've also got Ukraine so we've we've let a lot of people in from Ukraine giving them uh, a place to live and be looked after which again is a really good thing so all of these things are, are, are great but that it's putting a lot of pressure on services and uh, and mainly housing and health, um, right. they're the key uh, the key issues. Well, Rob, let's talk about housing for a second. So the big issue in New York has been true, I mean, for since probably the 1950s in one way or another. Um, the the failure of the city to build enough affordable housing. What does London do to 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 create affordable housing? Are there programs there that we should be looking at, or or or, or model potential models? So we, um, uh, the whole time that I've been working, people have been talking about problems with housing. And uh, this was elevated to a housing crisis, a, a national and London-based housing crisis, which is a real issue. People, are, that terminology doesn't seem to have had any impact. So I think people are now trying to reclassify it as a housing emergency. They don't really know what language to use to express just quite how bad this is. So. Um, housing is such a huge issue you know the, the government felt in the last election that um london was seen as affluent and successful and the rest of the country was suffering so they they came up with this leveling up program and then when applications went in for the leveling up funding london actually received quite a lot of this budget 
because actually some of the poorest communities are still in London. So although it's seen as this great place of affluence and wealth, it's also there's there's a great disparity. Um, we are seeing people really trying very hard to come up with schemes. Uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people looking at small sites. You know, there's in the sense that so we've had some uh, companies who tried to map out all the available land left in London. There's quite a lot, actually. It's just that it's very difficult to understand who owns what, what is what is what has potential for development. So we, we are trying to tackle small sites, but that's not a big problem solver. We are addre- we are looking at should do we need to reassess the boundaries of the green belt? I think there's there's a misconception that there's this, there's a line on a road and that you've got like a heavily polluted one side and then the next side you go to and it's all green and lush and there's animals dancing around in reality <laughs> the green belt is quite you know is quite a murky um area kind of you know where sort of suburbia sort of filters out into the countryside and a lot of it is you know a lot of it can be quite either industrial or, or brownfield land so it's it's a real mixture um i think local authorities were trying to build their own housing they just don't have enough funding to do that we're, we're also looking at community-led development where local people get together and just say look you give us this land and we'll we'll build some housing on it and it's not for ourselves it's for local people from the local area at affordable right. rates i would say that sounds exactly the same as new york basically everything you said minus the green belt and the dancing animals um which you don't actually have either um, Leanne, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think one of the the issues, and maybe it's like this in, in New York, is that, you know, there's just been a failure of people to really get their head around the problem and have a, have a, collective effort and I I just want to sort of touch on uh, Grenfell the Grenfell Tower tragedy that happened in 2017 and um, first of all it was it was a massive tragedy for you know the the hundreds of people who lost their lives but but more importantly the inquiry after Grenfell has just shown how no one no one owns the problem if you know what I mean so not only have we failed to build new social housing the the programs for um, maintaining and looking after the existing stock have been really really poor so right. we've found with um, you know there's some been uh, some great people on TikTok and social media really bringing this to the fore now about the the quality of of, of housing that often people live in. So you get a house on social housing or you get in a flat and then you move into it and it's got so many problems. You know, it's poor for your health. Um, it's, it hasn't been looked after. It hasn't been maintained. And I think unpicking who owns the problem is a bit of a nightmare uh, sure. because there are just multiple agencies and departments and that's not my job. It's someone else's job. And that is causing a lot of problems. And if I think if we could unpick collectively New York and London, how these departments work, you know, we could solve a lot of the world's problems. So, Rob, let's, I'm going to throw the next one to you as well. Um, uh, I've combined two issues, uh, crime and quality of life. Now, um, there's a big debate in New York and in other American cities about how much this is a problem of perception versus reality. Um, anyway, tell me, tell me how, how the, how the, how those issues are dealt with in London. I, I think, I think the answer is simply that, um, and I, I, I think the police would agree with this is that they, they don't need to do so much. They didn't, they don't need to, sh- um, shoulder the entire burden. 
and that actually the more we invest in social programs, you know, community centres, after school activities for teenagers, the, the less the police have to do. So I think, it, you know, it's rather a, rather a case of arresting all the crims. You know, what we actually need to be doing is thinking about what's driving them in, into criminality in the first place. Um, and so I think, you know, I think London is maybe uh, a little bit ahead of the rest of the country because, you know, due to our um, austerity cuts, a lot of those services have gone. Um, but we, you know, we are trying to put things in place um, to, to stop people going down that path. Um, you know, there are a lot of um, tensions in London uh, between, the, between the police and um, certain communities. And I think we've just got to try and unpick those relationships and make sure that they, they're working happily together. And I think as soon as once that trust is put back in place, everything gets a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So petty crime is not something that that Londoners spend a lot of time talking about or worrying about. Well, we have we have. I'll just finish this, Liam. We have been uh, there's been a, a story in the news recently about petty crime, which is excellent because um, we're we're heading towards a mayoral election, and um, the 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 person who's trying to um, uh, take the crown from Sadiq Khan recently announced that she was pickpocketed on the London Tube, and it was just further evidence that you know he wasn't doing his job as mayor for crime and safety in the city um it turns out she her her um wallet with her with her travel pass and her business cards and her money was actually returned to her <laughs> by local people with nothing missing and i just thought it's just such a great symbol actually that um there are certain instances you know where in city life where people just do the right thing still um, and, you know, and that that has happened to me. And I've um, I've heard stories of people who've left things on buses. The bus has done an entire loop and then they've got back on the same bus and there's been their wallet. So I think it is a mixture of, yes, crime is definitely a problem and gang related violence is 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 a worry. But I think on the other hand, there is still a lot, quite a lot of common decency left in London. Yeah, yeah. I, I what I was going to say just to the, we're we're also at a point where technology is causing some of us older people to you know mutter a lot under our breath because you know there's been a lot of media stories recently about middle class shoplifters, you know all of these posh people who are going in and uh, when they're scanning their items because there's no one there to serve you that they're just sort of nicking stuff. Um, and I, no one has the figures on that. I don't know if there is a middle-class crime epidemic. Um, but I think crime is a, is a constant thing and it's, it's such, so subjective. Um, and I'm sure people would listen to this. And if you've just been mugged, you'd be going insane, going, it's a real problem. Right. But, but if you get around the city and you're happy and you have no problems, you think it's a joyous place. So it's... Uh, um, it's it's in, tough. The, in the eye of the beholder somewhat yeah. yeah tell me tell me about the commercial real estate situation in 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 london in new york uh the number of people in midtown manhattan which is the real sort of economic engine of the city is sharply lower than it was before the pandemic many many more people are either working from home or hybrid work or for one reason or another coming into the city less often um, no one knows quite what to do about that. It looks like it's going to be a big problem in the banking sector. We have these huge loans against these very valuable buildings or buildings that were previously valuable. What's the situation like in London? Is it similar? Is it is it is it not as serious? What's what's going on there? 
Yeah, I'll pick that up because I think um, uh, I think that the uh, coming back to the office is starting to settle down again. Um, uh-huh. I mean, we're seeing, you know, most people are coming sort of three days a week into the office and you're seeing uh, TFL put out really good um, stats on tube use uh, and you're seeing sort of a real dip on Mondays and Fridays, but it's coming back up on weekends and people are coming back in, not so much to the office, but coming in to the city to to have a good time in the city um, uh, or, or, or the centre. Um, I think in terms of commercial real estate, the, the people who are really worried are the people who've got sort of B-grade offices, you know, what they call stranded assets. So people are pay, still getting paying top dollar for offices that are you know the abs. You know places like St James's and Westminster. You know they're getting really, really big rents there for state-of-the-art offices that have got all the bells and whistles. But if you've got a crummy office building, you know, sort of on the edge of town, you've got a problem, right? Because why? You know why go to that office? Um, right. So the destination office, I think, and if you own those buildings and you're investing in that commercial real estate, uh, you you'll be okay. But again, you know, there's there's been a lot of moves. I think it was Land Securities last or Landsec last week said that they're now on the lookout to start buying up assets because the you know the the value is dropping. So mm-hmm. you've got people waiting to to jump on those. Well, then, and, yeah. and then there's a big movement over here as well for what we call retrofitting, which is uh, refurbishing these old office buildings. So rather than pulling them down and rebuilding to uh, be much more um, uh, uh, aware of carbon and uh, retrofit them. But it, that takes a lot of a lot of money and investment and people with long-term strategies. But um, I, I certainly, some of our clients, uh, for example, in the, in the business that I uh, founded, uh, talk about the tension between U.S., um, owners of their businesses not understanding the London market. So mm-hmm. they'll be going to them and saying, look, we really want to invest in this portfolio of offices. And their, their US bosses are going like, what the hell are you talking about? That's insane. Um, and they're saying, no, it really is different here. So I think there is a genuine difference right. um, between uh, the, the New York and London. Rob, tell me about, and this is our last sort of New York-London comparison question, but tell me um, about congestion pricing. That's something that's been looming in in New York for for years now. It's supposed to be instituted soon. No one really has a clear idea of what it's going to entail, what it's going to cost, who's going to bear the biggest burden of that. Um, How is it handled in London? That's often cited as a success story. Does it feel like a success story if you live there? Has it made a difference in terms of the quality of life in the city? Tell me what you can describe the situation to me yeah i think um congestion was a you know a seriously contentious topic when it was mooted and as with many of these things it when it once it just folds itself into the fabric of your life i think everyone just moves on people still moan and complain but um it you know it has definitely alleviated traffic there are there are lots of statistics to to prove that I think, you know, you hear anecdotally, you hear lots of people debating their route, you know, to, to avoid congestion tolls. So, um, you know, it, it definitely works. The, the, the broader debate that's going on now is how, you know, what happens next to the pricing? How much is it, you know, how does it, how much is it affecting 
businesses, you know, for, you know, again, going back to that affordability issue, you know, you could say that you're kind of, you're making London exclusive by pricing people out of being able to drive around. But right. as Leanne said, luckily, we've got a great public transport system. Right. So as long as you've got the infrastructure in place, people shouldn't really complain, although they obviously always will if they can't do exactly what they want. So but I, I live outside London. I pop in my car in the morning. I want to drive right into the middle of the city. What's that going to cost me from a congestion pricing, right? The middle of the week, peak hour. What's that going to run me? Well, I think it's about fourteen pounds. Um, fourteen pounds, so it's twenty five dollars basically. Or yeah, maybe less. yeah. But yeah. I mean, I would say you'd be mad. I mean, if right. <laughs> even with congestion, yeah, that wouldn't be a pleasant journey compared right. to public transport. It's also, I mean, the the whole of London is, or the, particularly central London, is about not using your car. So right. they've just introduced as well about, I think, about eight months ago, twenty mile an hour speed limits. So it's you'll probably find it's going to be quicker for you to perhaps drive to an outer London suburb or, you know, and uh, jump on a bike or a tube. Um, but it's quite tortuous. I've, I've done it a couple of times in the last couple of months and it's uh, only because I had to move stuff for my son. And it's, right. it's awful, absolutely awful. Well, it's funny. Nothing reminds me of New York more when I'm in London than taking a taxi to Heathrow. I mean, it is a nightmare. And it is just like New York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what's what's fantastic now is, you know, we've just opened, uh, well, recently opened the Elizabeth line that cuts through central London and takes you right to Heathrow. So you've now got another major transport route, you know, to to that airport right from the east. So I, th- so I think it is, um, I think it just goes to show that you, you have to build this stuff in to alleviate those other journeys. Right. So let's talk about um, young people and London. Um, obviously, something that New York and London really have in common is that they are these incredible magnets for talented, educated young people uh, to move to and to to start their careers in and to have a good time in. Um, uh, Leanne, I think you mentioned uh, when when you first moved to the city, it was kind of on the comeback, uh, it was sort of re- being rediscovered by a new generation. Where does that sort of sit now? Is, 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 is London still as magnetic as it's ever been? Is it facing more competition from other cities in Europe, maybe other cities in the UK? Where does its sort of uh, attractiveness to young people, where is, it, where is it now sort of in terms of historical arcs? I think uh, I think it is definitely it, it remains hugely, hugely attractive but the 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 killer is the cost. Right. So I you know before this call I was thinking to myself you know I moved here in 95 and I had a you know a reasonable job I wasn't paid huge amounts of money but but I got a flat uh, not a flat I lived with uh, I rented with someone and it wasn't eye-watering I mean I can't remember it ever being difficult to pay that bill and right. nobody I knew really talked about it um and but now I mean the the cost uh uh for young people is really uh, really, really difficult. And so I think that is forcing them to look at other cities. And that's a good thing in some ways, because other cities are getting, you know, that talent inflow. Um, it's right. bad for London. But I, it's, it's what my biggest concern for London is that we become sort of a middle-aged, sort of two-tier city where you you have to be quite sort of old and um, have a bit of money to be able to enjoy it, or 
you know, or you're the child of someone who's right. middle-aged and old, you know, middle-aged and has a bit of money. So th- that's a real problem, I think, for our creative industries, you know, artists, all of those sorts of uh, – and there are always good places for people to go, uh, you know, back in the day uh, right. to find squats. You know, people always talk about living in squats and things like that. That just doesn't exist anymore. Right. It just doesn't exist. So, so Rob, about the young people who are in London, one of the things I noticed in New York, uh, New York is sort of – as, I don't know if it's as popular as ever, but certainly since the since the pandemic is over, um, it's it sort of feels like uh, like as exciting for to be a young person here as ever. The cost is obviously a huge issue, um, but one thing that seems true is that the attachment um, of young people to the city runs pretty shallow. You know, they like the food, they like the nightlife, they like their friends, they like the nice jobs they get, but they don't necessarily. Um, they don't care who's mayor. They don't vote in anything. They don't give a crap about uh, what the city's spending priorities are, any public policy issues. So you guys are obviously engaged with the society that's about getting people <laughs> to care about what's happening in the city and to think beyond, you know, their own little lives a little bit and, and beyond. Um, how do you do it? Is it happening? Do, do Londoners, um, young Londoners, are they, do they, do they think of themselves as Londoners in a meaningful way, in a sense of caring about where where things go from here and what the what the potential of the city could be if 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 it were sort of managed better i i think there is definitely um a london identity and a, and a, a london pride and that uh is very fiercely held to particular zones you, you know within even within london itself so i, th- I think there and i think there is uh there is quite there's a decent amount of civic pride and if you know, if public areas are treated well, then people do use them from all walks of, of life. Um, and I think local authorities are the best at dealing with uh, younger people. I think if you take a, if you try to take a city-wide view, you'd be getting it all wrong because different young people in different parts of London need different uh, support and, and different uh, ways to kind of attract them into taking part in city life. I think in our continued efforts to reach out to young people, we we are constantly asking other young people, you know, what do you care about? What do you want us to do? So rather than saying you should care about your governance, we we first, you know, we want to start off saying how do you use the city? How do you use the spaces? What do you need? And then and then maybe we could reveal to them afterwards there are ways to get this, but it involves it involves um, participation right. in the process. And I have I've met some. Um, uh, there's a lot of in a lot of London boroughs. They have um, these youth advisors who actually tell that they're actually they're actually brought in and given a given a small amount of money, and they're asked to tell the local authorities what to do. Youth you advisors. Know, youth advisors. So, so it's young people. How old are these not, people? Are they 16, 18, 25, or like? Yeah, I'd say I'd say between between sixteen and uh, between sixteen and eighteen. So it okay. really is on that cusp of. You, you sort of stop being a child, but you're not quite yet an adult. And, um, you know, I met one of these youth advisors, Tori, who gave me a, a very important lesson on the, on the usefulness of Greg's, which is a sort of low-budget bakery chain okay. in London, which someone like me would probably look down on Greg's. Right. Um, whereas, actually, this youth advisor told me, no, this is an important social spot for us. We can afford the things in there. We meet there. We gather outside. The, you know, the... The staff are often people we know from the local area, 
more Greg's, please. And, you know, and so for me, I would have, I would have wanted a sort of, you know, artisanal bakery on every corner, but that's not accessible to those people. So I think it's important to listen rather than um, tell people they need to be more involved. That's a really good example. I like that. I'm going to ask the big question to which there is no answer, but that's why you guys are on the podcast. So one of the things that I feel when I walk around New York and we, we had a a recent storm where the subway was just flooded horrendously. And there were just these pictures all over the internet that just, just looked like the end of time, the end of the end of the world. Um, New York is not ready for whatever's coming next. Um, now London is very similar to New York in that regard in which it's a very old city, but what is the, what, how would you characterize the, the adaptability of London to climate change? What, what's, what's being done? What should be done? I think, well, it's, I mean, it's such a massive issue. And obviously we, we have the Thames that runs right through the city. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was at an event uh, on the Thames and, uh, you know, we stepped outside and the, the Thames had burst its banks. You know, and suddenly everyone was going, oh, my God, this this can really happen. I think that I think everybody is obsessed with climate at the moment within uh, business and, and government within London, which is a great thing. I'm not sure it's all knitted together yet. I, I think we've we've caught up to this problem. I mean, there's there've been people who've been talking about it for decades and decades, but suddenly in the last five, ten years, people have really sort of panicked about it. I think we will get there. I think we won't be uh I, I'm a little bit pessimistic about uh uh helping us avert the uh global warming. I think that's happening. It's how we how resilient we are to deal with it. Um, so I think, I think people have absolutely got the bit by their teeth. We don't have all the solutions yet, but I feel like we're heading in the right direction. And I, I know that sounds like a bit of a cop out, but I do see, you know, in our day to day work, there's no no meeting, no discussion that is not talking about climate change in in a very real way. Rob, do you have anything you want to add on that? And then I'm only going to ask you my final question. Well, I, I think it, uh, some of the secrets are in London of the Future, the book, um, and I and I and most people, well, as Leanne mentioned, a lot of the the writers agree that we've we've got to build less and use what we've got already and repurpose it. And I think also natural solutions, bizarrely, it seems obvious, but natural solutions can be integrated into the city. So you know, if a street is hot, you have trees to provide shading. If you've got increased water, then you need more soil and less hard landscaping to to let it run off naturally. So, you know, I think I think the solutions are there. And I think, you know, there are lots of organisations that are desperately trying to get more nature into the city. So I think, you know, we could see that maybe maybe the grand avenues of New York will be canals like Venice. You know, who knows? Okay, so here's my question to you. The final question. Uh, One of the reasons I wanted to have you guys on. Obviously, the book is terrific and, and something that, that listeners should check out. Um, but also, London is in some ways a, a model city for New York, a better run, more appealing and attractive in many ways, um, at least for visitors. Um, uh, what cities do you guys look to for inspiration? Is there another place? And it doesn't have to be the whole city. Maybe it's just one particular aspect. But I'm curious if there's, if uh, for each of you, what's a, 
what's a what's a city that you think of as as a place that London could learn from? Well, I think there's a lot happening in Paris about mobility around Paris that I I, I love. Um, I think uh, Melbourne, you know, from from Australia, uh, has done a huge amount in terms of li- livability. Uh, and Can you cite something from Melbourne? Like, what what are you thinking of when you say that? Well, I, I think how they repurpose some of the, you know, lots of their old alleyways and, and the, the city was unused, you know, on weekends, people would go in, go to the office and then leave. So right. they've really brought people back into the city. And I think the city of London could learn from that. We still, the city of London is only for offices, which I think is a great shame. Right. Um, but uh, I, uh, you know, and I think, uh, you know, New York is a place to visit. I absolutely love, uh, by the way. Um, but but I th- I find London really hard to beat. Uh, you know, it's it's an it's an amazing city. And the thing is, London has English people or British people who are all slightly bonkers, and that's a wonderful thing to be around people who are so happily eccentric. Right, Rob. What what about you? I think. Um... You know, we, we, we talked earlier about housing and affordability. And so I often, most people name around here name check Barcelona. Mm-hmm. It's just an amazing city where there's life and vitality, but, you know, there's huge density and it's delivered in a really humane way. So it's not tall towers and it's not, um, you know, great sprawling estates. It's in the, in the heart of the city, but in good quality housing. So I think, I think we could learn a lot from Barcelona. Great. Well, Rob and Leanne, thank you so much for doing this. The book that the London Society has produced is called London of the Future. I don't think it's available in the United States. I've ordered it from the UK. Um, it was well worth it, I have to say. Although um, I, I did spot it in um, one of your great bookshops, uh, McNally. Oh, you saw it in McNally? Yeah. That's a competition for P&T Knitwear, where we are... Um, uh, where we're recording this uh, podcast, which is owned by Bradley, who's the normal proprietor of this podcast. So McNally's just down the street from us. We actually really love it too. So um, uh, I, kudos to them for carrying the book. <laughs> One copy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's gone. Maybe it's gone. Maybe. maybe you'll have to order it online. Uh, Leanne, Rob, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.